0: We've been considering the suffragette claim that they won votes for women in Britain. It's looking increasingly unlikely. They never seem to have been there at the key moments. In fact, their campaign seems calculated more to make money and win votes for the Tory party than to make any impression on the Liberal government in power. Nor is there any evidence that they were winning public support. Worst of all, from 1908, the suffragettes' organisation, the Women's Social and Political Union, WSPU, wasn't even campaigning for votes for most women, just for the rich. But it was mainly its poorer members who were being put in harm's way by its tactics.
1: Today we're going to look more closely at those tactics. And now we're getting to the ugly stuff the suffragettes themselves later tried to cover up. We're talking about throwing axes at people, setting fire to full theatres, putting bombs on trains, sending packages laced with acid. We look at how out of control this campaign was, and we'll see why none of it came close to budging the Liberal government's opposition to women's votes.
0: Hello, good to see you at the History Café. Last time we saw that it was very largely the poor and lower middle class women in the WSPU who were put in harm's way, getting arrested, going on hunger strike and being brutally force-fed. If rich suffragettes ever ended up in prison, they were treated with great caution, for example serving out their sentence in the hospital block. There's no reliable evidence at all, in particular, that anyone ever tried to force-feed Emmeline Pankhurst herself. What's striking is that the Pankhurst were only nominally in charge of this militant campaign. In
1: 1907, Emmeline Pankhurst had peremptorily halted annual conferences because some of her members had launched a bid to make the WSPU into more of a democracy. But it left the organisation with virtually no machinery at all for making decisions. And the result was that the Pankhursts laid down the law for
0: everyone else. But in practice, much of what happened on the ground was, to a very significant extent, which historians haven't really noticed, out of control. Let's just look again at some of the militant events we sketched in our last discussion. In 1908, Edith New and Olivia Smith famously chained themselves to the ratings at 10 Downing Street. It was one of the most iconic actions of the suffragettes, but it was their own idea. Then on the 30th of June that year, Edith New and Mary Lee took WSPU's campaign up a notch when they threw stones through the windows in Downing Street. But again, it was their own idea.
1: Another was Marion Wallace Dunlop. In June 1909, she was in jail for writing a quote from the 1688 Bill of Rights on a wall in Parliament. It was Dunlop who then took the suffragette campaign up another very significant step when she went on hunger strike. But this, too, was another entirely personal initiative that took the movement's leaders by surprise. And
0: this is a consistent pattern throughout the suffragette story. Nobody told Emily Wilding Davis to set fire to a pillar box in 1911 or throw herself at the king's horse at the 1930 Epsom Derby. Nobody told Lillian Lenton to torch private houses. They were what the WSPU called, using two separate words, free lancers. But it was women like Wilding Davis and Lenton who pushed the campaign along, not any leadership from Emmeline or Christabel Pankhurst. Perhaps we should be saying that it was women like New, Dunlop, Wilding Davis and Lenton who were the real heroes of the movement, or maybe it's martyrs, or maybe it's real terrorists. All this
1: meant that the WSPU leadership had little grip on its campaign of militancy. Leaders always maintained, for example, that they never threatened anyone's life. That's manifestly not true. Perhaps that was the leadership's intention. If so, the escalating terrorism was out of control. And terrorism was the word Christabel Pankhurst herself used. In June 1912, the Prime Minister H.H. H. Asquith was on a state visit to Dublin and Mary Lee, the WSPU paid organiser there, threw an axe through the window of his carriage. It missed him but hit the Irish leader John Redmond in the head. That July, suffragettes attempted to set fire to the Theatre Royal in Dublin during a matinee. Asquith was there, but so were a lot of other people. In fact, the building was packed, and it was a miracle nobody was killed. Then, WSPU women planted a
0: bomb on a busy train coming into Waterloo. The commuters were only saved because the bomb didn't go off. Between 1912 and 1914, Lillian Lenton went on a spree of arson, setting fire to the Orchid House at Kew and a large number of private houses. In 1913, WSPU women laced letters with acid and left four innocent postal workers in Dundee with terrible, life-changing burns. And notice another thing too. The WSPU normally acknowledged the violence after it had happened, but not always. When Emily Wilding Davis threw herself at the King's horse, she could have started a whole new campaign. Such was the public sympathy at her death that the WSPU rather reluctantly staged an enormous funeral. 6,000 women with a guard of honour in white, carrying wreaths for her, quote, noble sacrifice, paying her the dues of a fallen warrior, a brave commander and a crusader. But what the usual story doesn't tell you is that at the same time, Christabel Pankhurst published a suicidal statement that Wilding Davis had written the year before. It was a crude attempt to discredit her by trying to show that the poor woman had been mad.
1: What the usual story also doesn't tell you is that four days after Wilding Davis's funeral, a man, an old Harrovian, Harold Hewitt, ran out in front of another racehorse. This horse, called Tracery, was the favourite in the Ascot Gold Cup and was leading the field at the time. Well, Hewitt was carrying a WSPU flag and a loaded revolver. He too was trampled down and badly injured, although he eventually
0: recovered. But the WSBU wanted nothing to do with Hewitt. Well, maybe it was because he was a man. But we might guess that it was also because the WSBU did not want to encourage other members to start disrupting race meetings. Well, no surprise there. Wouldn't have gone down well with their smart clientele. Those posh ladies who were pouring money into the WSBU funds and who loved to go to the races.
1: From 1912, the campaign had become significantly more violent. Just how violent is not a story suffragette apologists have ever wanted the public to know.
0: According to historian Michael Rosen, the month Wilding Davis died, June 1913, was the peak of it. In that month alone, suffragette activists did a total of £52,000 of damage from Oxford to East Lothian. According to Bank of England figures, that's equivalent to about £6 million now, and that's just in one month. Far from condemning the violence, the suffragette newspaper ran gloating double-page spreads on it. The Prime Minister assaulted on a golf course. Wires cut at a railway station and in a telephone box. A haystack burned. Two schools are torched, another saved by a caretaker before the blaze can take hold. A bomb in a Methodist chapel, another in a town hall that fails to
1: explode. And all those come from just one edition, 5th of September 1913. And that was after the worst of the terrorism had passed. These lists of violence went on week after week after week. It is true that the suffragettes never killed anyone. But what the usual story we're told about the suffragettes doesn't make clear is that it was a sheer fluke that the campaign of bombing and throwing axes and hurling bricks through windows into halls filled to capacity didn't end in anyone's death.
0: So did the Pankhursts, in their expensive HQ with its floors of highly paid staff, even try to contain or direct this terrorism Historian Krista Kalman, who has studied the paid organisers of the WSPU, found that they began organising cars to collect stones and hammers for window smashing, passing on explosives and corrosive materials, establishing safe houses for women on the run, or staking out a target with passwords and secret communications. A police raid on the London headquarters in April 1913 found six bottles of highly explosive and carcinogenic benzene. On one occasion,
1: Lillian Lenton was spirited across the Channel to France in a private yacht. This, according to Kamen, was a well-run and coherent strategy. Well, if that's true, you could say that it makes the shocking violence worse. It makes it appear that the organisation actually set out
0: to kill and maim. In reality, it only looks true to a limited extent. As we shall see, the old story that Christabel Pankhurst was organising it all from her Paris apartments is not and cannot be true. But you can certainly argue that there is no evidence that the Pankhursts and their organisers ever lifted a finger to bring the violence under any kind of control or prevent anyone getting badly hurt or killed. What they did was enable it. And then they stood by, while their volunteers, who were largely from their poorer members, kept coming up with new and increasingly dangerous ideas that put themselves and others very seriously in harm's way. And what makes this all the more shocking is that it was obviously achieving nothing at all towards achieving votes for women. In fact, it was doing the opposite.
1: What the usual story about the smart, white, green and purple-dressed ladies of the suffragettes fails to tell you is that their campaign of violence, extending over many months, put countless innocent people in serious danger of their lives and resulted in a number of serious injuries. But of course, it mostly wasn't the decorous ladies in their white dresses and big hats who were setting bombs, posting acid and throwing axes. It certainly wasn't Mrs Pankhurst in her smart hotel and her beautiful new velvet outfits, her new pearls and emeralds. It was usually the poorer women of the movement, the women for whom the Pankhursts weren't, after 1908, even trying to win the
0: vote. Now we should just note that whatever the usual story tells you, the Pankhurst WSPU was not the only militant suffrage organisation. The Women's Franchise League staged a series of pickets at Parliament from July to October 1909. In the end, they chained themselves to the grill in the Ladies' Gallery in the House of Commons and the grill had to be dismantled to get them out. Meanwhile, men suffrage campaigners shouted their support from their gallery, the so-called Strangers' Gallery. Fourteen men and women were arrested. Other protesters refused to pay their taxes, saying that there should be no taxation without representation. They watched as the bailiffs took their furniture away. One tax protester, Dora Montefiore, barricaded herself in her house for six weeks. But none of these movements ever threatened anyone's life.
1: And the most important point is that none of it was getting anywhere. Between 1903, when the WSPU was founded, and 1914, there were 18 further attempts by individual MPs to get women's votes through Parliament, and another by a member of the House of Lords. It carried on the pattern that had been established at least since the 1880s. A majority of MPs were in favour of votes for women. But the government wouldn't budge. In fact the majority of 179 in favour in February 1908 was the highest figure recorded before the eventual bill that gave women the vote. But that was the year, you remember, that things started to get violent, that Edith New and Mary Lee picked up stones in St James's Park, threw them at Windows in Downing Street, and set the suffragettes on the road to spiralling violence. The notable thing is that as the violence got worse, the majorities in Parliament, in favour of giving women the vote, fell.
0: While the violence was a matter of chains and railings and stones through windows, many MPs still seemed to be sympathetic. There were majorities of 35 in 1909, 109 in 1910, 167 in 1911. But when the violence seriously escalated in 1912, majorities immediately turned to defeats, 14 against in 1912. 173 against later that year. In 1913 and 14, again majorities against. As we shall see, there was more to be said about these figures, but they do tell a plain story. The worse the suffragette campaign of violence became, the less well votes for women did in Parliament. Just like the WSPU's strategy at by-elections and its policy of deliberately getting arrested, as we saw in an earlier discussion, its policy of violence actually harmed its cause. The only thing the suffragettes were succeeding in doing, and they were doing it extremely successfully, was raising money and then spending it on themselves.
1: Now we should take a moment to look around a little and, as we say, pull up some more chairs and consider why the suffrage campaign was going nowhere. And why, whatever the story later invented, intimidation had never been a viable way to get Edwardian governments to act. Well, one obvious reason was the new Prime Minister. In 1908, the Prime Minister Henry Campbell Bannerman fell seriously ill and the King summoned H.H. H. Asquith to Biarritz in France, where the King was on holiday, as he seems to be every time we come across him. Anyway, there, at his smart French resort, Edward VII appointed Asquith as Prime Minister. This was extremely bad news for suffrage campaigners since Asquith had been an unreflecting and chauvinist opponent of women's votes ever since writing articles about the issue for The Spectator back in the 1870s. In 1913, Asquith would reject a private member's bill on the grounds that a woman is, quotes, naturally disqualified from voting as a rabbit. Is disqualified from voting. I love that one. to oh, be <laughs>
0: Ironically, as his contemporaries remarked, Asquith surrounded himself with women. Sound familiar, Spectator journalist? What his long-suffering wife called his harem. He always yeah. airily claimed that women should be above the hurly-burly of party politics. So like the Pope. But, but that didn't stop him discussing politics, indeed state secrets, freely with his lady friends over Lake Night Bridge, and in the hundreds of letters he wrote to them, often several times a day, sometimes while he was attending debates in the House of Commons even when he was supposed to be chairing cabinet meetings. But if Asquith was a boorish hypocrite... Does sound familiar. ...he was also a political realist.
1: Women's votes were just too far down the political agenda to be worth much attention. His cabinet didn't even discuss the matter until June 1910. What the usual narrative about the suffragettes overlooks is that however important it seems to us today, votes for women really was a very minor issue in Edwardian politics.
0: As we've seen in our earlier discussions, there's no evidence at all that anything close to a majority of contemporaries, even among the women, were interested. Women's votes only mattered to a tiny minority, and half or more of those were against.
1: Much more important, Asquith's government had far more pressing issues to deal with. This is really the key context in which we have to understand the campaign for women's votes. And it's what Christabel Pankhurst, the suffragette's chief strategist, should have been spending her days working out. The suffragette campaign of violence never came close to budging the Liberal government's opposition to women's votes. That was not only because it was very much a minority interest among voters, male or female, but also because, as the suffragette leadership could have worked out for themselves, the government had far
0: more pressing things to do. First, there was Irish home rule. The Irish had fought a campaign going back much further than women's suffrage to be effectively independent of Britain and have their own proper parliament in Dublin. Dublin. This was a campaign of major constitutional and strategic importance, and it had in the past threatened to break into violence. Anyway, it mattered much more to politicians than women's votes for the plain reason that dozens of Irish MPs, many of them in favour of Home Rule, sat in the House of Commons. Their votes would one day be useful and their cause could therefore not be ignored.
1: Even more challenging, the Liberals were trying to bring in the first basic measures of a welfare state. It would be the beginning of a profound shift in British society. By 1907, the Liberals had already started providing free school meals for poor children and free places for them at local schools. They'd made a start on reforming trade union law and provided compensation for diseases workers caught doing their jobs. Over the next few years, they would bring in the country's first old-age pensions, set minimum wages in certain trades establish labour exchanges for the unemployed, guarantee shop workers one and a half days off every week, and set up the first national insurance scheme to pay doctor's bills.
0: Well, it was an ambitious programme. But the key thing was that it all had to be paid for. The Liberals calculated that they needed to raise something over £16 million of new annual revenue, about £2 billion in today's values. Wealthy taxpayers and their supporters in the Tory party and in the House of Lords grew increasingly worried that the Liberals were about to hit them with new taxes. And that's exactly what the Liberals intended to do. When the Chancellor Lloyd George got up to present his budget on the 29th of April 1909, he calmly announced a new super tax on the very rich, as well as new duties to pay on inheritance, house sales and other things. Of course, the large Liberal majority in the House of Commons voted for Lloyd George's budget. But Britain's right-wing press was up in arms and the House of Lords threatened to throw it out.
1: Well, it sparked a major constitutional crisis. Traditionally, the Lords never interfered with anything to do with tax. but ever since the 18th century, political commentators had connected taxation with representation. And since the Lords, unlike the Commons, were not elected and therefore didn't represent anyone, they were expected to allow tax measures to go through with as few changes as possible. The Lords hadn't rejected a budget for two centuries. But in November 1909, after an acrimonious summer of public meetings, they did exactly that.
0: In January 1910, Asquith therefore called an election. Lloyd George taught the country, calling the Lords, accurately enough, 500 men chosen accidentally from the unemployed. (laughs) The Liberals went into the election with a massive majority. But when the votes were counted... It turned out they'd only scraped home with just two seats more than the Conservatives. Now, to get anything passed, they'd have to depend on help from the 40 Labour MPs and, much more important, the 82 Irish Nationalists. So, of course, their priorities became far more important than women's votes ever were. The Lords at last reluctantly let Lloyd George's budget through. But that
1: wasn't the end of the crisis. Asquith now came up with a Parliament Bill that would prevent the Lords from ever stopping another budget, or indeed any other bill, again. So the battle between the Houses continued through 1910 until Asquith persuaded the King to create hundreds of new peers if the Lords wouldn't pass his Parliament Bill. In the end, they did pass it, but only after yet another election in December 1910. The result was more or less a repeat of January. No surprise at all, then, that votes for women were very low down on the government's agenda. There were enormous constitutional issues pushing
0: themselves up the queue. There had, in fact, been just one window of opportunity for women's votes. After the first election in 1910, the Liberal government did, for the first time, allow a franchise bill to make some progress. It wasn't, of course, because of anything the WSPU had done. It was for the simple reason that, at the election, the Liberals had lost their majority in the House of Commons. Now they were keen to do anything that might, for example, persuade the growing phalanx of Labour MPs to support them. And Labour MPs were loudly demanding more working men and women to get the vote. They thought, of course, that working men and women would vote for them. The Franchise Bill they discussed was called the Conciliation
1: Bill, not as some historians seem to imagine, to conciliate the militant suffragettes, but to conciliate MPs from all parties in the Commons and win their support for all the other measures, the important welfare state measures, the Liberals were trying to get through.
0: And indeed the Parliament Bill. A conciliation committee of 34 MPs, half from the Liberals and half from the Conservatives, Irish and Labour, met to frame a bill to give more men and some women the vote. Hopes were so high that the WSBU even agreed to suspend its campaign of violence. And surprisingly, for all the chaos in its organisation, the violence did in fact stop.
1: What happened to the conciliation bill in Parliament, which the Liberals strung out for two years and ended up as three different bills in 1910, 11 and 12, is too convoluted to go into here if we hope to remain conscious. But one reason the conciliation bills got nowhere was that even the women's allies among the senior government ministers had started to have second thoughts. Why? It was a result of the suffragettes' disastrous strategies, particularly that of campaigning for votes for the rich.
0: The suffragettes' chaotic campaign of intimidation and violence got them nowhere. The government was far too preoccupied with pressing political issues. One of their backbenchers, John Massey, explained in The Times in 1907, Liberal MPs had, well, they'd lightly and casually talked about their sympathy with women's suffrage, feeling that the question was rather academic than practical.
1: (laughs) In January 1910, women's votes suddenly climbed up the agenda when the Liberals lost their majority in an election. A conciliation committee was got together to try to pool ideas from other parties because, of course, the Liberals now needed to conciliate those other parties so that they could keep them in power. But now it became clear that even the supporters of women's votes around the Cabinet table, like David Lloyd George and Edward Grey, and to a lesser extent Winston Churchill, were starting to have
0: second thoughts. As negotiations around the Conciliation Bill got going in 1910, these prominent Liberal Ministers began to say that they had to oppose the measures being put forward for women's votes. The reason they gave was that the bills didn't go far enough. The cross-party committee that was discussing all of this had proposed enfranchising women basically on the same basis as men. But because most men got the vote by being householders, and because according to the law at the time, married women could not be householders, It meant enfranchising a relatively modest number, around a million, of women householders who were either widows or spinsters.
1: Now, leading Liberal supporters of women's votes started to claim that they wanted to do better than that. They wanted to enfranchise more women. And that was for a very simple reason. These Liberal ministers had come to fear that if this million widows and spinster households were enfranchised, they would turn out to be the Tory voting rich. After all, they argued, the only unmarried women who could afford to be householders were rich women of independent means, surely.
0: The conciliation bill, complained Churchill, gives an entirely unfair representation to property. A spinster <laughs> of means, living in the interests of capital, is to have a vote and the working man's wife would to be denied a vote, even if she is a wage earner. <laughs> <laughs> in actual fact, this was patent nonsense and Churchill should have known it. Research completed back in 1904 and 1905 by the Labour Party and the Women's Cooperative Guild had shown that if women were given the vote on the basis proposed in the conciliation bill, between 80 and 90% of them would be working class. Working class women were in fact more likely to be unmarried or widowed householders than the better off. The conciliation committee commissioned its own research in 1911 and came up with exactly the same result. Its proposals would enfranchise large numbers of working class women who might vote Labour or Liberal.
1: Well, maybe Churchill and the others who were protesting that they wanted to do better by women were just making lame excuses for the conciliation bill's slow progress. But there was undoubtedly a problem.
0: It was very difficult to avoid the impression, by 1910, that votes for women was a middle class and even upper class issue. A fad among exactly the kind of women Churchill and the others suspected would vote Tory. And one
1: significant reason for that was the change that had very obviously come over the Pankhurst suffragette organisation, the WSPU. It had begun quietly among the Labour Party millwomen of Lancashire. But, as we've seen in our earlier discussions, from 1906 it had shifted to London and, in the capital at least, abandoned its labour roots. Now it hit the headlines and the streets of the capital, campaigning among the silks and satins of London society – In 1908, it had even changed its campaign from votes for women on the same basis as men to votes for taxpaying women. And that meant votes only for a tiny number of the very wealthy.
0: Emmeline Pankhurst went on telling working-class audiences that she was rooting for them. But those who saw what was going on inside her WSPU knew it wasn't true. Theresa Billington, who'd left in disgust in 1907, wrote that the Pankhursts, quote, coquetted with rebellion, edging out working-class women because they brought the danger of big demands for change with them. Mm. Everything else, went on Billington, was silenced in order not to offend their new upper-class friends.
1: Christabel Pankhurst was in discussions with the Tory leader, Arthur Balfour, and in elections, the suffragettes consistently opposed the Liberals. With the result that the Tory candidates often got in. It all created the very plausible impression that the WSPU was campaigning to get votes for the kind of rich, exceedingly well-dressed women who came to its home county's drawing rooms, turned out in its London processions, bought the eye-wateringly expensive furs advertised in its publications, and, most important of all, poured tens of thousands of pounds into the WSPU's bank account
0: and would vote Conservative. Conservative. As we've seen, Christabel Pankhurst tried to justify all of this, saying that politicians were, quote, more impressed by the demonstrations of the feminine bourgeoisie than of the feminine proletariat. But it was another serious political blunder. Liberal MPs were certainly not impressed by the kind of fur-wearing, impressively hatted feminine bourgeoisie who flocked to WSPU events and who looked very likely indeed to vote Tory. And it was the Liberals who were in power, one way or another, from 1906 until 1918. Going after the home counties rich made the WSBU a very wealthy organisation, but it made votes for women less and less likely. And
1: then, as the conciliation bill struggled to get through Parliament, the suffragettes made another serious mistake. In 1910, after years of doing nothing on the issue, the Liberal government of H.H. Asquith finally got together a committee to discuss extending the vote to more men and to some women. It had nothing to do with the rather out-of-control campaign of mounting violence the suffragettes had been conducting. It was a direct result of the election of January 1910 in which the Liberals had lost their majority. The so-called conciliation bill was an attempt to win support from Labour and Irish nationalist MPs and keep the Liberals in
0: power. Outside Parliament, the suffrage societies put as much pressure on MPs as they could. Most suffrage societies belong to the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS, led by the veteran Liberal campaigner Millicent Fawcett. During 1910 and 1911, the NUWSS persuaded 146 local councils to send petitions to the Commons in support of the Conciliation Bill. Millicent Fawcett invited Lloyd George to a rally at the Albert Hall. Up till now, he'd supported women's votes. He was introduced to the rally as, "quotes the strongest and most forceful personality in the present government.
1: During these months, the Pankhursts actually succeeded in announcing a truce and calling off their militant members. Then they too campaigned to persuade MPs to pass the conciliation bill. They held meetings throughout the country. Other events were organised by the Actresses' Franchise League, the Women's Freedom League, the Conservative and Unionist Franchise Association, the Artists' Suffrage League, the Church League for Women's Suffrage, the National Industrial and Professional Women's Suffrage Society and the Men's League for Women's Suffrage, and many others. The list goes
0: on. In fact, between all the societies, there were over 4,000 meetings between July 1910, when the Conciliation Bill passed its second reading, and November of that year. Incredible. That included a massive rally in Hyde Park, with 40 speakers attended, some reckoned, by half a million people. The second week in November was declared Suffrage Week. And there were meetings at all the major London venues, Capstone Hall, Queen's Hall, St James Theatre, Memorial Hall, and two more mammoth rallies at the Albert Hall.
1: At the NUWSS rally on the 12th of November 1910, nearly 300,000 signatures of support were presented, and that was just from the men. At the WSPU meeting in the Albert Hall on the same day, 12th of November, £9,000 was raised for the WSPU. So that, as far as the WSPU was concerned, could be considered a great success. It was, as we've seen, committed to raising enormous sums for its well-paid staff and for the upkeep of various members
0: of the Pankhurst family. But of course, the conciliation bill made slow progress. No surprise, everyone's attention was on the parliamentary crisis. The Liberals probably only ever intended the conciliation committee as a way to string Labour and Irish MPs along. It wasn't difficult to work out.
1: And then, on the 18th of November, which was the Friday following Suffrage Week with its enormous rallies, Asquith abruptly dissolved Parliament and called the second general election of the year. His timing, just after Suffrage Week, was, of course, unfortunate. But as we've discussed, it had nothing to do with the Conciliation Bill or with women's votes. Talks between Commons and Lords on the Parliament Bill the one that would stop the Lords ever again blocking a bill passed by the Commons, had finally broken down. An election was inevitable
0: and couldn't be delayed. The Conciliation Committee was wound up, which was standard practice for all parliamentary committees before an election. It was a blow for women's votes. But everyone expected the Conciliation Committee to restart a new parliament, which in fact it did. Then they would begin piling the pressure on again.
1: But as soon as Asquith called the election, the Pankhurst WSPU loudly proclaimed that it was a deliberate tactic to prevent women getting the vote. They declared that they had called off their suffragette militancy in good faith, and
0: now they had been betrayed. Well, it was complete nonsense, but the WSPU's response was immediate. The day Asquith called an election, Friday the 18th of November 1910, has come to be known as Black Friday because of the violence that erupted at the House of Commons. Emmeline Pankhurst led 300 women in a series of small contingents from Caxton Hall in Westminster to Parliament to protest. They were met not only by a huge, hostile, and unruly crowd, but also by hundreds of police. It's a well-known and shocking story. The WSPU women later filed formal complaints that they had been sexually assaulted by the police or thrown to the crowd to do what they liked. One suffragette
1: had her wheelchair dismantled by the police, who left her completely unprotected as the crowd closed around. There were complaints of groping and the tearing of clothes, both by the crowd and by the police. Emmeline Pankhurst's own sister was so badly injured she died some weeks later. So far as it's possible to tell from a day of conflicting and angry evidence and counter-evidence, the police and the crowd did behave completely
0: scandalously. Henry Brailsford, a Labour journalist who'd been acting as secretary to the Conciliation Committee, wrote formally to the Home Office that the police gave every impression, quotes, of having almost unlimited licence to treat the women as they pleased and to inflict on them a degree of humiliation and pain which would deter them or intimidate them. Well, Brailsford's implication was that Winston Churchill, the Home Secretary, had given the police permission to rough the women up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Churchill, of course, denied it and blamed the policemen whom he drafted in especially from the East End. Of course, he also blamed the suffragettes themselves. The Pankhurst WSPU was, he fumed, mmm, a copious fountain of mendacity. <laughs> Nobody should believe anything they said. Well, over 200 women were arrested. None of the police, of course, ever faced charges.
1: There's no doubt in our mind that the treatment of the suffragettes on Black Friday was scandalous. But there's equally no doubt that the suffragettes had miscalculated very badly. The conciliation bill was the best chance in many years for women's votes. Restarting the violence would only make it more difficult. In fact, as we've seen, for the first time since the early 1890s, votes for women now began to suffer defeats in the House of Commons. But the Pankhursts ignored the effect their restarted campaign was having in Parliament. It was at this moment that violence began to escalate from window-breaking to arson and bombing.
0: And there's possibly something even more shocking. According, at any rate, to the historian Martin Pugh, the real reason the suffragette truce had been called off and the violence had restarted was not because Asquith had called an election. Theresa Billington had always said that the WSPU had put its, quote, militant machinery into action purely for its advertising values. Violence made headlines, which boosted income. The allegation here is that the WSPU called off its truce not because it felt betrayed or because it felt the conciliation bill was never going to get anywhere or because it felt it would never have votes for women, but because it was running out of money. It needed the publicity to raise more cash. Well, can that be true? We'll find out next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or contact us on social media at Pod.